Welcome to Buddha at the Gas Pump. My name is Rick Archer. Buddha at the Gas Pump is an ongoing series of conversations with spiritually awakening people. We've done over 660 of them now. If this is new to you and you'd like to check out previous ones, you can fish around on our YouTube channel, but you might want to go to batgap.com, B-A-T-G-A-P, because we have the past interviews organized much more systematically in about four different ways. This program is made possible through the support of appreciative listeners and viewers. If you appreciate it and would like to help support it, there's a PayPal button on every page of the website. My guest today is Emilio Diaz Barroso. I'm getting fancy by rolling the R's in that. Emilio perfected the art of appearing very successful. This is the bio he sent me. He manages two family offices, a venture investment firm, sits on the board of over a dozen companies and so on. But until recently, he was always trying to get somewhere other than where he was, seeking recognition, achievement, love, success, and finally, the ultimate carrot, enlightenment. In his pursuit of enlightenment, he was forced to face what all the seeking had been trying to avoid his own sense of unworthiness. Defeated at the game of becoming and humbled by the realization of his true nature, he is now dedicated to alleviating suffering in the world. Emilio is a father to three incredible teachers and resides in Los Angeles. So welcome, Emilio. Good to meet you. Likewise, Rick. Thank you for having me. So we thought we would do this uh, in a way that we often do these interviews, which is kind of a mix of autobiography and going through some interesting discussion points that will naturally come up as Emilio kind of outlines the journey he's been through. And he has done that also in a book he's written called The Mystery of You, which I've been reading. I got the impression from your book, Emilio, that you grew up in a well-to-do family and, you know, you didn't really have to struggle in that regard, correct? Yeah, I did. Quite a well-to-do family, actually. I grew up in Mexico City, and we were really at the top of this sort of socioeconomic scale. If you're familiar with developing countries and the big gap between people that have resources and donors, and donors very prominent, and we were in that circle of individuals. So lots yeah. of money, lots of power, lots of influence, lots of inner poverty. <laughs> <laughs> Not necessarily inner poverty, because you can have both, but I guess you're saying that the outer fulfillment was a lot more plentiful than the inner fulfillment. Yeah, I certainly was raised to believe that there was going to be a point when enough of the outer was going to suffice. Yeah. That that was the pathway and there was a a light at the end of that road of that tunnel and that if I only ran fast and long enough, then I would be able to rest and be at peace quicker. Yeah, a lot of people seem to feel that. I read something the other day, I don't know if it was in your book or some article I was reading, where there's a whole batch of young people these days whose aspiration is to become billionaires because they see Elon Musk or Mark Zuckerberg and these people and they think, I want to do that. I guess they presume that these people are are very fulfilled or something, but um, it's not always the case. I I grew up around those individuals in my family. Those specific individuals or people like that? People like that. Billionaires. Even back in my early years where billionaires weren't necessarily that common. And even though there were a lot of signs that would have pointed me, should have been enough to make me realize that it wasn't going to be enough. I still subscribe to that conditioning. It's like, okay, I got to 
actually because I was raised in this environment where there was a lot of power and money and my family had set this big precedent, I thought that I had to outrun that mm -hmm. and carve my own path, but do it in a big way that was so much more important and meaningful and special. And obviously that had its own implications to it. That's part of the reason why I wrote the book, really, because a lot of the books that I had read when I started out on my inner growth, before even it became spiritual in nature, were written by people that didn't match my lifestyle. And I still wanted to be the billionaire. And yet, I thought that I couldn't have those both, the very much in the world and the inner peace and freedom that I was craving. So you mean books like Power of Now or? Iron Katie yeah. books, that kind of thing? Yeah, very much so. Whether it's Katie, Gangaji, Aryashanti, like non-dual teachers or Eckhart that are that profile, right? They are the teacher and they live that archetype. And in my mind, somehow, I really believe that I wouldn't be able to arrive at a place where I felt that level of inner contentment until I was done with all these modern day requirements that I had. I had three kids. I was running businesses. I was within my own world, incredibly successful and perceived it as that way in sort of the standard societal words. So I thought, well, when I finish this, then I'll be able to commit time to that. Yeah. You know, obviously those people that we, you just mentioned didn't achieve great material success before becoming spiritually awakened to whatever extent they have. But you felt that your particular calling necessitated that given well, your background I, family upbringing all that kind of stuff that was what you had to do well i felt at the time that i had to choose between really being in the world that i was born into and in one way or another honoring that incarnation or having to go to a monastery if i really was chasing this sort of spiritual freedom that i was so interested in i just didn't think that it was possible and i didn't have a lot of models for it being possible that there was a way to have the yes and yeah have that experience. Well, in fact, there are famous models that would suggest that you did have to do that. I mean, Buddha was a prince who left the castle, you know, to become a wandering mendicant. And uh, St. Francis of Assisi grew up in a wealthy family. His father was some kind of textile merchant, and he just decided to leave that. So obviously, these people have given the impression that that might be necessary. And I'm not arguing that it is, but there's obviously historical precedent. Yeah, and I was raised Catholic, right? So the whole orientation that I was operating under was, you know, material possession goes totally against sort of the, the Christ consciousness. That I, that I, and that was my, my understanding of it. I'm not suggesting that everyone that subscribes to the religion believes that, but that's certainly what I was indoctrinated on. Yeah. Well, Christ himself said it's easier for a camel to pass through the eye of a needle than it is for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven, right? Yeah. And I think what he ultimately, I would imagine, meant by that was not just rich in the terms of financial accumulation, right? But the, the degree of attachments to identity or otherwise that we're holding on to that make us heavier on the journey. Yeah. So... Why were you reading those books in the first place? How did you get to the point where you thought that you might find something in those spiritual teachers? It's a combination of an inner calling that I don't know that I can explain that was there from a very early age. That actually was at one point because I was in this Catholic environment, I thought I was going to be a priest. It's like, oh, this, there's 
but this will be very telling. I was so type A in my orientation. I was so driven. You I'm wanted like, well, to be Pope, I'm gonna, right? I'm going to be the Pope. I'm going to be the Pope. <laughs> and ultimately, that was really emanating from this sense of not being good enough. I really wanted to be special. I wanted to be valuable to people. I wanted to be perceived as valuable. I wanted to really, deep down, have others validate my worth. And when I really dig even deeper to not be abandoned. And I thought, well, I think I pivoted towards self-growth and spirituality because I was I became so good at the financial accumulation game and at the projecting those images, but I realized there was always someone that had more than me. And I said, well, if I can do all of that and also be conscious, oh, wow, I'm going to be really special. Everybody's going to love me. So I think there's a combination of that and an inner calling that was always sort of nudging me on the inside. Did you go through therapy at some point? Is that how you got these insights about not having enough self-worth or wanting people like you? Or did you just cognize the, those things on your own? I did a lot of therapy, quite a lot. And then I did a master's in spiritual psychology oh. uh, with an emphasis in consciousness, health, and healing. So I was structured in my approach. Again, this type A knew how to be efficient but I was always driven towards more. That's the virus that I it took me a really long time to snap out of. You can put a positive spin on this drive towards more. I think every living being has a desire for greater happiness. The mind, even from moment to moment, has a desire for greater happiness. If you're sitting reading a book and it's not that interesting and then some beautiful music starts or something, you, your attention naturally shifts to the beautiful music. You don't have to even use any effort. And, uh, you know, I think that that drive manifests in pretty much everything we do in life. And sometimes it's successful, sometimes it's thwarted. But ultimately, we could say that it leads to what you've discovered, which is that there's no amount of outer success which will satisfy the drive. Completely. Yeah, and no amount of inner transformation. I was convinced I was going to get to a place when I shifted from the outer pursuit to the inner pursuit that there was going to be a place where I eventually reached a state like the people that I admired that was going to make me feel enough and whole. And what I've come to realize is that as long as the orientation is on the self, as a local identity, it'll never be enough. We'll never be whole. And the me that wants to be whole, by definition, is operating out of a partition, out of a limited sense. So even my inner journey was driven by that me. Yeah, so well, I'm glad you clarified it that way, because when you first said no amount of inner exploration can satisfy it, I thought, wait a minute. Uh, yeah, because it, that can, but obviously if it's in, just in terms of making a better individual me, that's not going to cut it. I think people that are psychologically oriented think that they're going to, this is my experience and a lot of the people that I mentor, a lot of what I do is mentoring, think that they're going to heal themselves enough in order to make themselves whole. And the spiritually oriented people think that they're going to awaken enough to transcend their humanity. And I pendulumed between the psychological and spiritual realm of trying to get somewhere other than where I was. But there was still this me at the center of this running. Yeah, I have a friend named Craig Holiday who's been on this show who, uh, who wrote a book called Fully Human, Fully Divine. 
it's a theme that comes up often. Just two weeks ago, I interviewed a woman who is very critical of the neo-advaita scene in which it's emphasized over and over again that you are not a person, there is no self, and there's nothing that you can do to further yourself spiritually or anything else. And she found it very damaging, very nihilistic, and resulted in a lot of disassociation and spiritual bypassing. I think that, well, my friend's book title is appropriate. It's fully human, fully divine. You can have it both. It's just a matter of approaching it right. It doesn't involve blotting out your individuality or negating it or anything like that. It just involves supplementing it with something that's universal so that you are ocean and wave, not just one or the other. Yeah. There's a beautiful teacher, Locke Kelly. I'm not uh-huh. sure if you had a chance yeah, to speak with him. Sure. And he's a dear friend. And, and he speaks of waking up, waking in, and then waking out. I had heard the wave and ocean analogy many times. And it's almost like there were two aspects of me that were in competition constantly. I'm the wave, but I'm the ocean. How do I do that? It's so paradoxical to my mind. I don't, I don't get it. And I was still trying to get it. But there was this wave that wanted to be the ocean. And there's a subtle distinction between a wave that recognizes itself as the ocean and the ocean living out as a wave. Can you elaborate on that? I spent probably about eight years of my life going to 10 silent retreats a year, really committed, uh, mostly with Arya, some with Gangaji and I really wanted to get in mind. And I had these big spiritual experiences where the veil of conditioned reality fell away. And I think we've, we've, many of your listeners will probably have experienced some versions of this where everything is one and it's just this bliss and joy and everything is so clear. And then it would disappear. And then it would come back up. And, and it would normally disappear the moment that I tried to grab onto it or the reintroduction of the sense of self. And I was convinced that there was going to be the big experience when eventually everything changed. The problem is that there was this wave that was still looking to say, oh, let me remember that I'm the ocean. And I'm going to do whatever I can to remember that I'm the ocean and recognize that I am ocean, which makes so much sense. And yet, when you truly know that you are the ocean, then you are the ocean embodying the wave. And it's a slightly different semantically, but it's a huge difference in experience. Yeah. Because then whether the wave remembers that it's the ocean or not, it's irrelevant in that moment. Whether the wave behaves in one way or another, it's a byproduct of knowing that you're the ocean, that this wave becomes just love and compassion service, and all these qualities that are associated with, with this state of being. But those are the byproduct. And I had it reversed for most of my life. And I noticed most of the spiritual people, spiritual seekers that I have been along this journey with me still believe that there's going to be this one moment when everything becomes and i hear teachers speaking of this and and i think it, there's value to it but it can be very confusing at least to my mental framework and i and i think to a lot of people's mental framework yeah there's a lot of good stuff in what you just said one is just using our ocean analogy the ocean doesn't have to remember that it's an ocean or think about it's being an ocean or anything like that it just knows itself as the ocean and just carries on you know without giving it a second thought. And I think one's experience can mature to that extent that, you know, it's, this is not something you're looking for or thinking about throughout the day. You're just living your life. If you actually want to check in, oh yeah, there it is. But you just function that way ordinarily, normally. I think this ocean is part of the 
I'm going to say natural, but that's just because that's my experience of some of the people that I've witnessed, but it's by no means the only. There is that value to the transcendent experience of, oh, I am not this human entity, individual body, mind. I am not this weight. I am all of this. And there's a comfort in that transcendence because it becomes very distant and very quiet, very still, very non-active. The way, the way I've heard teachers talk about it is this uh, stuck in emptiness. And I think most of the spiritual teachings are aimed at that awakening. Very few, there's more recently, which is very encouraging, talk about the waking out that Locke speaks of. The reality is that there's a, there's a lot of temptation for this new spiritual egoic identity to get lodged. I remember when I first was in that space, there was nowhere to go. There's nothing to do. There's nothing to say. There's like, it's just, it's all ocean. Everyone's silly. <laughs> and I was in the middle of parenting and having businesses and running lots of money. And so that, more the children, because the, the, the money meant nothing and losing it or not losing it was not really something relevant. But my children really grounded. And they were this vehicle through which the ocean was able to fully re-embody the waveness with all its humanity. Because in that spiritual egoic identity, it's very safe to not get triggered. It's very safe to feel free from having a bad day. And these enlightened masters never have a bad day. That humanity is that reclaiming, almost redeeming all of these little nooks and crannies of this conditioning become the joy of life. Yeah, that's great. From my perspective, the whole point of spirituality is really not to escape out of life, but it's to live life fully. You could say maybe 200% of life, 100% inner values, 100% outer values, even if those outer values are not opulent, but they can certainly be enriched and enhanced by that inner being, inner awareness. I'm reminded of a friend of mine who has undergone some very beautiful state of awakening. I don't know exactly how to define it, but there's tons of bliss and oneness and vastness and to the point where she's afraid to look at the sky as she's driving down the road because she'll become so vast she's afraid she won't be able to drive but she has an eight-year-old adopted son who has autism issues that need to be dealt with and he kind of is her teacher in a way keeps her down to earth but she's kind of passed through this phase of afraid to look at the sky and it's become integrated into this very beautiful state with vast awareness fully open heart and yet total practicality and dealing with the vicissitudes of life and dealing with them so skillfully as a result of this awakening you know her fear was that she would lose the ability to do that but in fact her ability to do that has been enhanced many fold having undergone this transition. It's incredible, isn't it? I would have never believed that I could live the life that I live from the place that I live in and still be so engaged in everything I'm doing. And it doesn't mean that I don't mess up, particularly as a parent with three teenagers. <laughs> but my, it's wild, but I love it. And when I do mess up, it's so quick because it's not personal. Yeah. So it's so quick to assume responsibility and say, you know, that was reactive. I'm sorry, that's not how I want to show up and let's learn from this. And because there's no nothing that's sort of making it mean something about me and carrying all that extra baggage that just becomes unnecessary. Yeah. And part of that extra baggage was trying to seem perfect. Again, the trying word yeah. and the seeming word. There's a verse in the Gita which basically says yoga is skill in action. And by yoga, it means not just physical postures, but 
unit of awareness or the state of samadhi is actually not an escape again from the world, but is uh, a means of being more skillful in the world. And that's what you're actually describing. Yeah, because I, I used to think that it was going to be kind of like a doormat. Oh, if I'm all love and heart, and I'm in this place where I truly know it's all a story, and it's all just an expression of I, of source, I'm not going to want to do anything. Or how am I going to be efficient in the world that I operate in, which is a world of high-performance financial markets? And to your point earlier, it becomes, and your friends, it becomes just so much more interesting and fun and joyful and actually efficient, which is very surprising. One way of looking at it is that nature itself is very efficient. There's a a deep intelligence, I believe, guiding nature. If you throw a ball, there's an infinite number of trajectories the ball could take, but it actually takes the most efficient trajectory given the gravity and the velocity and the wind resistance and everything else. It's just absolutely the most perfect trajectory it could take. And I think that when we get established in this, whatever we want to call it, unbounded awareness or whatever, we're actually getting established in the field of intelligence from which nature itself functions. And our individual life can take on the efficiency that reflects the way nature itself functions, because it really is nature's intelligence that's guiding it through our individuality. Oftentimes, I use the metaphor of hiking for, I mentor a lot of entrepreneurs. How do you operate and how do you decide? And I don't find myself making choices. It's strange to say. And so I, I try to reference hiking. So imagine you're hiking and you have a general direction. You want to go up. But imagine if you were overanalyzing every step mm-hmm. and overthinking, should I go that way? Should I go this way? What if there's a cliff? What if the, which is really how we have normalized operating in daily life. This over-protagonistic approach to that intelligence, right, that, that you're speaking of. And I think most people recognize, the way I describe it often is, we've learned to have a, almost like a intermediary between ourselves and the rest of life. And in this layer of intermediation is where all our commentary happens, where we say, I like this, I don't like this, more of that, less of this. And to the degree that this layer thins out, and there's greater intimacy with the moment, or absolute intimacy with the moment, to the degree that we would reference it that we're on the in the zone or we're in the flow or we're present. And all it really is is just a, a recognition of this natural intelligence living itself out. We have all reference points for that, I believe. Whether it's getting lost in a sunset or, you know, a newborn or dancing, whatever it may be. I didn't grow with an awareness of my body. Like the first time that somebody asked me, well, how does that feel? I'd be like, well, feels good. I feel it was a mental answer. But the body is such a direct gateway into the moment. And it allows me to directly experience whatever is here in that very intimate way, without curiosity. Where the experiencer and the experience itself are not separate. Does that tend to be your experience most of the time, that the experiencer and the experience are not separate? Even when it's not, I want to be careful of setting it up because when I would hear someone describe what their experience was like, I would associate it with the permanent state. And I think the idea of permanence, we love it as minds. When there's a contraction or when that layer is on board and there's a a narrative that comes online, even that is seen as an expression of source, as, as a wave in and of itself. 
So then there's this unconditioned recognition, not even conditioned to how this humanity shows up. Yeah, that's good. Did you, through all of your courses with Adya and all that, did you adopt a, an actual daily practice of some sort that you have stuck to? Or did you mostly just live your life and then go on retreats whenever you could? I was very dedicated to the practice for a while. It was, it was structured meditation and a lot of reading. And it's interesting because for, when I was in this spiritual, more spiritual seeking mode, I wouldn't resonate with Katie's inquiry, for example, with the work. I just didn't resonate with it. And then once some of the bigger changes happened, the inquiry came back online because the inquiry that I was practicing was the deeper inquiry of who am I and, you know, sitting with that in silence for as long as it took, not an active approach of, is it true and all that. But when, when some of the bigger shifts happened, I gravitated towards Katie. She's a very dear friend as well. I gravitated towards her because it assisted this light in looking for all those little places that were, yeah, that were just looking to me to be met and loved. Yeah, that's a good tool. Right now, I don't distinguish between sort of the sitting meditation, the sitting practice, and the just regular life. So I don't have a structure per se, but I find myself sometimes sitting up and spending time in the middle of the night, just, yeah. just in, in what I would have called meditation before. Have you found that this yearning and gnawing feeling that used to drive you has pretty much dissipated as, and has been replaced by a sense of contentment. I don't remember the last time it came up. Yeah, that's good. There's going to be a conference next week called The End of Seeking, an online conference. And I'll be interested to see how the people in it define seeking and how they define the end of it. But my knee-jerk reaction when I hear that phrase is there may be an end of seeking in the sense of, you know, this kind of feeling of, of emptiness and you just have a, a desperate need to fill it or to be relieved of it. There's an end to that as genuine contentment dawns, but there's no end to the, to spiritual development as, as I understand it. St. Teresa of Avila even said that it appears that the Lord himself is on the journey. It seems to me that all beings in the universe can still learn and grow in every respect, but that doesn't mean that you're always chasing the dangling carrot, you know, and feeling unfulfilled. By no means at all does it mean that. Yeah. I like the way that it's often framed as it's not that the seeking goes away, it's that the seeker loses its place. Loses its grip, yeah. In the absence of a seeker, whether seeking arises or doesn't arise, it's irrelevant. Because the seeker has an identity around getting somewhere or even the spiritual seeker is very invested in stopping the seeking. Yeah, good point. Like a dog trying to catch its tail or something. And what was really valuable for me, someone once mentioned, and I don't know if it's a Zen koan or, or I just made it up, not the image, but that it was a Zen koan. It's a figure of an individual with a stick in their head. And in front of it is that carrot, but in the back is a bag of poop. I think we're all very familiar. I certainly was very familiar with the idea of, oh, you're chasing the carrot and, you know, no matter how many times you get there, it won't be enough. But I wasn't as familiar with, with the fear behind me and the framework that I operate and the feel that arrived for me with the, I must outrun that, whatever that was. And, and sometimes externally that was, I must outrun failing. I must outrun disappointment. I must, 
but internally it was I must outrun the feeling of not being good enough. I must outrun jealousy. And no matter how much psychological work, I was still imprisoned by this whatever current bag of poop was. And what I really take from that image, and I've had moments in the past where some of the things that were jealousy was one of those really gripping energies in my system. I grew up in a, in a situation where my parents were separated, but they didn't really tell us they were separated because they thought it was better for us as kids. So I, I grew up associating this loyalty with intimacy and all these things that were very confusing. So this jealousy would show up. And at one point I had to fully let the experience of jealousy be met in my body. Hmm. And it was so liberating, but it's become a, 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 that's why I speak of the body. It's become this doorway into everything. I noticed I've never experienced tiredness before or hunger. These things that are so familiar to me, I had always experienced the desire for tiredness to stop or for hungerness to stop. And to discover this sensation that had been along for this journey with me for so long, for the first time directly, it's like, what is hunger actually like in my body when I'm not immediately trying to get rid of it? And it feels like that's what the relationship is to every arising energy now. That's interesting. The body is like a barometer or a thermometer, or some kind of sensing instrument, which enables you to navigate life more viscerally, it sounds like, more sensitively. Not, not, as a not tool. just in your head, but in your gut. Not as a tool to orient, because also time doesn't hold the framework that it used to, but more as a constant invitation to the moment. It's a constant invitation to what's here because it's not, it's not operating in the same way that the mind does in time. The body is, and these energies are so here that I, it becomes um, a love affair with the instant through the organ of sensing. I think it was Meister Eckhart who used to say it's a, an intuitive regard with oneself. That's interesting. Not too many people talk about this, I don't think. Have you heard many people talking about this? Not many. I find I, it very I, interesting. It, it is fascinating. I operate in worlds that are very mental. And so I became very proficient and very top-heavy in this logical, rational. And when I speak to people about these things, it's very easy to fall in the category of woo-woo. And I've found it, even for my own mental orientation, so helpful to ground it. And even with my children, right? Because children, they don't take concepts. It's like, come on, what are you really talking about? <laughs> so this is very primary and elementary language and, and examples. And the body is so here. It's like, okay, let's discover, because a lot of entrepreneurs experience anxiety and stress. And so with them, I'm not talking about enlightenment or waking up or not being themselves. But if I invite them to explore whatever is present or how do, how do they feel that stress, which is usually sort of in solar plexus or in the, in the core of their belly, and then get so intimately close to it, where the boundaries between them and this energy disappear, then they're, they're essentially, they are bringing the light of consciousness to something that was previously held with resistance. Yeah. And I don't even need to say the word consciousness or spirituality. Or, and ultimately, that's where all of this leads. We don't need more beliefs. We don't need more people telling us that all is one because then our mind idealizes it and considers it a goal. And that's where the premise of you, what you were sharing of, it's always unfolding 
is so challenging for the spiritual persona. It's like, no, no, I need to know that I'm going to get somewhere where now I'll be okay. I like to think of it as being like education in the, in the ordinary sense, which we've all been through. And nobody ever reaches a point at which they say, okay, I'm educated. That's it. Can't learn anything more. I've reached the pinnacle of human knowledge. You know, there's always like a next horizon. And um, that doesn't frustrate somebody like Albert Einstein or one of the geniuses that we've seen. It, it's more like exciting. It's like an adventure. Oh, boy, what can I figure out next? I just see spirituality that way, too. There's no end to the deepening and the, and the refinement. Think of it this way. We have all these faculties. We have a heart. We have a mind. We have an intellect. We have senses, perceptual abilities. What is the full extent to which all those things can blossom? How loving can a heart be? You know, How compassionate can it be? How subtle can sensory perception be? I just think there are no end to these things. And some people might say, well, all that stuff, you know, that pertains to relative phenomenon, and those are illusory. So you don't have to worry about all that. But I don't think so. I, I think that the the whole package is involved in genuine spirituality, absolute, relative, everything in between. Yeah. It's very comfortable to assign no meaning to the f- form. When you are in the formless, form really is, is perceived as so translucent and, and non-existent and impermanent. And yet, it is through those stories that the mystery gets revealed. So these stories, this form, these appearances are where that heart gets to connect in the apparent separation. That's why the, the title of the book is The Mystery of You. It's like just an ongoing discovery. There's value to the accumulation of more knowledge, more experiences, but it, it's more a journey of continued discovery, like a big freefall where you at some point decide that you're going to stop grasping and you start smiling. Yeah, you know what I thought of as you were saying that, and I've heard references to this in various spiritual literature, the relative life is actually grist for the mill, so to speak. It's a means in and of itself for further advancement. I think that applies even to recluses, but certainly most of us are householders. And as you say, you refer to your children as your teachers. I think that it can be a handicap not to have engagements in the world for most people as an aid in their spiritual growth. Kind of putting that in negative terms, but I didn't used to see it this way. I mean, I used to have a rather escapist attitude toward the world and just wanted to get out of it. But I found that when I ditched that perspective, finally, my growth really accelerated and became much more significant. Anyway, you're kind of saying that too, in terms of your relationship with your family, your children, your businesses. All these things are like spiritual techniques if you have the right orientation to them. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Life is intelligent. And I think we've got the perfect set of circumstances always presenting themselves to help us either, I like this word redeem, because all we really are is redeeming. We're taking these previously, almost like stories that were lacking some of that dimensionality of their beingness and we're infusing them with this light through living them consciously even if what we are infusing with light is our unconscious and that's why from this perspective where there's nowhere to go where there's really we use the word advancing but there's there's no one advancing it's all just reclaiming re-infusing the parts of ourselves that are represented everywhere with this light of consciousness 
That's great. And then I it's, that. I think where it gets tricky is where I still think that I'm a spiritual individual or an individual that will advance spiritually, right? And I need to make sure I'm using everything for my advancement, which I think is incredibly helpful. But then it becomes one more way in which this identity as the spiritually advanced or spiritually advanced advancing one gets engaged and invested. And that's not wrong. But then it's like, can the light of consciousness infuse even that? That impulse towards towards getting somewhere, that impulse towards the, the me that is interested in this advancement, because that's just who we get to be. Well, also what you're implying, or, or at least I inferred, is that spiritual people can be notoriously selfish, self-indulgent about my this and my that, my meditation and my diet, kind of prima donnas, fussy about it. But the ideal of spirituality is my cup runneth over. One is a blessing to everything. And you stated that very nicely too. And I think that the impoverishment of the world, whether it be financial or ecological or sociological or all the different problems that beset the world is symptomatic of the lack of what you just described, which is the infusing of the inner values into the world by most people. Not enough people are doing that. And I think if more people were, then all these problems would just be found to vanish. Which is not to say that there wouldn't be actual concrete solutions such as better technologies and all, but those too would come up if enough people were tapping into their inner wisdom. Yeah, I'm on a lot of boards of nonprofit companies and a lot of people that are trying to change the world. And my experience with most of the activists is that they have some inner wound. As we know, the world is a projection from a psychological perspective, but even more from a spiritual perspective. Inner wound that they're trying to resolve. And it's almost like if they're able to change the world enough, then it'll justify their inner hurt. It'll make it worthwhile. It'll somehow make it okay. If I can't fully heal here, I'll heal out there. I think it's an incredible motivator, but there's very few people, I can really think of one right now, Jane Goodall, who seem to operate from an inner cohesion. She's also a dear friend, and she is, I don't think I asked her, a friend asked her, what do you do with the poachers? What do we do with these poachers? Because they're, they're killing the animals, and obviously she's known for caring for the animals. She's like, how can I judge the poachers? Why wouldn't I just focus on giving them better jobs? I'm like, oh, just saying, I feel goosebumps. Like, if we were able to operate from that inner cohesion, then every time I would look at the world and say, oh, it's a mess. I would look at, oh, what is my inner mess? And that doesn't mean that I lose objectivity. I, I'm very engaged in trying to make things better. But if I can operate from that coherence, it's just so much more enjoyable, more effective. I attract individuals and parties to the mix that are able to create change. So I like to pay attention every time I'm looking out there and thinking that something needs to be different. I like to start with, oh, what is that reflecting in me? Very good. Remember the Beatles song, Revolution? It's a little bit before your time, but one of the lines was, we all want to change the world. But then another line was, better free your mind instead. Powerful lyrics. Yeah. Yeah. But again, it's worth reemphasizing that I think the world, such as it is, 
including whatever problems we're having environmentally, the war in Ukraine, everything else, is just symptomatic of the inner wounding, if you want to, to use your phrase, of billions of people. Billions of people are emanating that kind of inner quality to the outer world and creating that outer world in the image of that. Like you said, we have to keep doing stuff to help in the outer world. I mean, people need to be fed and this and that. But the inner wounding has to be healed in significant numbers of people in order for real change to take place. Yeah, I think of it as my inner wounding. Yeah, yeah. Sometimes it's almost like seeing this wave that gets to play a particular role. It's like, Mm -hmm. oh, what's my role as this individual entity? in redeeming that part, in reclaiming and bringing more love to that part within me. Because you're right, it is symptomatic. We witness everywhere the byproduct of that incoherence. Yeah. That forgetfulness. Yeah. In your bio, you said you are now dedicated to alleviating suffering in the world. And I don't think you meant by that, that you're just going to sit and work on your inner wounding and that'll be your contribution to the world. I think that you can you know, walk and chew gum at the same time. You're working on that, but you are also seeing what you can do to help others do that or to help others in various other ways, right? Yeah, very much like what you do. I show up and sometimes the mind gets ideas of what that should look like, but most of the time it's just right here. It's driving, it's walking, it's answering an email, it's everywhere. And to your earlier point, Things just happen, this divine intelligence happens to bring opportunities forward that just mirror that resonance. This is the direction. Isn't that something? It's beautiful that it happens. You have to have initiative in life, but at the same time, you have to counterbalance it with surrender so that you can be receptive to the direction that is being orchestrated for you by that divine intelligence. It's like that hike analogy. Yeah. You got to put on the right shoes, you got to start. Significant amount of time before sunset. But then, you know, then you're, on the, you're on the walk. You're on this exploration. It is that balance. And I, I always struggled with the word surrender. Because I was always approaching surrender in the same way I approached everything else. Yeah, like you'd be a pushover or something. That and I thought I needed to surrender. I don't write much, but I read something that I wrote like eight years ago. And, and it said, surrender is the last will to be surrendered. And this this will to surrender, ultimately, is just one more way in which I wasn't surrendering. I think one way of looking at surrender is just as a quality of humility, which might also be described as the quality of not insisting that things happen any particular way. And again, there's a balance between that and being a a pushover. One can have determination and conviction and, and so on, but at the same time be, like you were saying with your with the body sensitivity, being sensitive to the hints, the impulses of mm. what happens and being willing to shift direction if necessary, if that's the indication of the way things should go or are going. Yeah, what I hear when you say that is an agility and a, yeah, good word. And a deep listening. And I think the things that burden that agility and that listening are, for me, the narrative that has a particular identity attached to it. Because when there's, when there's an identity, there's a there's an attachment, a greater attachment to defending it or having a particular outcome. And I love yeah. that sensibility that you speak of. 
When you use the word agility, for some reason, I thought of a pro basketball player who's really in the zone, you know, and he wants to get from here to the other end of the court. And he can't just plow his way straight down the court. He'll get blocked and have the ball taken or something. But he has to have the forward momentum. And he doesn't know exactly what he's going to have to do to get from one end to the other. But as he goes, there's, according to circumstances, he's able to adjust instantaneously and get to the other end. Yeah, I love that. Because if I was going to ask, if I was studying, because I, I thought this was a, a sort of a basketball player that I was interested in becoming better at my game, right? I would try to break down his movements. And I would ask him, okay, explain to me, what did you think the moment that you were going to do this? And I'd be like, <laughs> I didn't think anything. <laughs> I wasn't thinking. <laughs> but he was at that place that you're describing where he was just agile, sensitive, where, and he'd done his part to be ready to not have that layer of protagonism get in the way. That's a good point too. He, he had done his part. Obviously to be able to play like that, he had put in a lot of practice and cultivated the ability to do that when the time came. So there's something to be said for that too. And it's so tricky, right? To talk about time and timelessness, because then, then if you break it down, did he ever prepare or was every instant just a function of the same intelligence? Right? And, it's, and obviously from one perspective, we operate in a world of time. So we, we need to speak of that language. And yet, it can often be used, like the fact that we operate in this world doesn't mean that it's the only reality. And I think it's important, even as we speak of he did his work, it's important to remember that every instant of that timeline was just that instant. See, because if I set it up in my mind, like I need to do something before something happens, it's this constant, oh, but he did his work, oh, but that teacher did that. And that's why they can do that. And how it was set up in me was that there was this process that would lead me somewhere. And while that is true, that can also get in the way because it becomes this always then phenomenon. And that's where back to the body. If in this instant, I can access the moment right here in whatever is present in my system. And then I'm in the same place that that basketball player was. Maybe I couldn't run and do that move, but I am in that same place of inner here-ness. Yeah. But paradoxically, feel free to dispute this, but paradoxically, there are things one can do to eventually be more in that state of inner here-ness. I think that's the way you phrased it. You know, like all of the retreats you went on, the practice you did and all this and that, you're a different person. You function differently now than you would have if you hadn't done all that. Because some people, especially the neo-advaita people, say, you don't do anything. If you do any kind of practice, you're only reinforcing the sense of a practicer. So you're already enlightened. Just realize that and you're done. I think that's very unrealistic. And I don't know if there's really very many good examples of that having succeeded, that approach. Yeah, it is so paradoxical. And thank you for bringing it up. Part of me wants to tell people when I'm along this journey with them and, and just accompanying them as they do their own inquiry. I get that impulse to say, you, you really just drop into right now. You really don't need to go anywhere. And I certainly did my running. So then what I've come to realize is that I support people in getting to disillusionment as quick as possible. Because that's really where all of this led me to. Not disillusionment, but disillusionment. Dissolving is the word you're using, right? 
No, no, disillusionment. Disillusionment. Okay, that's a good word too, in, in the sense that we want to come out of illusion. Yeah, I guess it is like that. I mean it in the sense also of where all of the strategies fail. That place of defeat. And if we can sit in the defeat for a moment before the next energy kicks in of, okay, that's a new strategy. That stopping, I think it was, it was um, we're sort of from Gangaji and, and her teacher, Papaji. Obviously. So just stop. And I never resonated with the stop. It's like, why am I going to stop? There's no way I'm going to stop. I'm going. <laughs> and I only stopped. I didn't stop because I trusted her. I stopped because I got tired. I stopped because I fell on my face. Well, I fell on my face many times. But at one point, I fell on my face enough where it was harder to get up. It wasn't that dramatic fall on my face. It was, it was probably could happen in half an hour of meditation. But that inner experience of defeat that I had previously overridden really quickly with something new was able to have an impact of snuffing out a flame. Yeah. You remember Aja's story about that? No, there's nothing. Pretty much. He was a professional bicycle racer, and he brought that competitive spirit to spirituality. And he was pushing himself really hard and going on retreats. So I'm going to be the best meditator on this retreat. And he got to a point where he felt like he was about to crack. And he, he left in the middle of a retreat and went home and he went to his parents' backyard or something where he had this little meditation hut. And he, he went into the hut and said, ah, that's it. I give up. And then, boom, he had his first big awakening. <laughs> yeah, I hear him talk about uh, failing at Zen. Yeah. And that's really all we can do, I think, is I have so much love and appreciation for Adya because he, he holds such a clear light of not taking anything and not pretending that he has anything that is needed by a student. And I think as a, as a teacher, he encouraged me to run faster. How so? He encouraged me to use that type pace. Like, okay, you want to you wanna really get somewhere? Okay, go for it. Go as quick as you can. Want, okay. want to really get in line? Go, go chase it. And I noticed the temptation. It's very easy as someone that is guiding someone or just accompanying someone in the spiritual journey to provoke a spiritual experience. You know, you just need to, there's this transmission that can happen if you just sort of really sit in that stillness and there's a, it's an energetic, but even just as I'm doing, I can feel the energetic just flow through. And the temptation to do that, to f- provide a quick experience, is there an Arya? I seldom see him go down that path because he recognizes the transient nature of that experience. And he doesn't dismiss the value of those experiences, but he knows those are just experiences. And he's like, no, you got to run your run. You got to go and do your thing, whatever that thing is. And his was the Zen tradition. And that's certainly been my experience that I really had to exhaust all these mechanisms of control, all these ways in which I thought that I was going to get enlightened. I remember he told me this thing one time about how he felt he found that he could give a person an awakening experience. He could awaken them in some way. And he eventually realized that that wasn't what he should be doing. And so he kind of changed the way he taught. I must have been more exposed to him after that conversation. <laughs> yeah. I think maybe he was somehow eliciting something prematurely in people. Maybe he felt that they needed to do more groundwork and that the experience would dawn naturally when it was ready to. There's a quote from the Sagadatta that I saw the other day. He said, the fruit falls suddenly, but there's a long 
process of maturation before it's ready to fall. There's a quote about bankruptcy. It's like, how did you go bankrupt? Gradually, and then all of a sudden. <laughs> <laughs> <That's good. laughs> I, think, I think that's kind of how it happens. I can point to and I can speak of moments when really big shifts happen, but it's very hard to narrow it down. As, oh, it was this moment when everything really, because it is a chipping away of a lot of things. Yeah, I heard a nice analogy. You could be walking and there could be a sudden downpour and you, you get drenched. Or you could be walking along and like in Great Britain, let's say, and, and there's this heavy pea soup fog, misty thing. And after a while, you get just as drenched as if you were in the sudden downpour. But you can't really say exactly when you got drenched. Where was the demarcation <laughs> between dry and wet? That's a great image. I printed out the table of contents of your book. Would it be useful to go through some of these points and discuss the points that you discussed in various chapters? Oh, of course. So I'll read them. Maybe some of them we've already discussed, but if not, this will give us some food for thought. The first chapter is called The Operating System. Why'd you call it that? I work in the tech space a lot. I invest in a lot of early stage venture. And a lot of these individuals understand the premise of technology evolving exponentially. And they're very focused, some of these very high-performing individuals, very focused on disrupting large industries and disrupting large companies and creating something that essentially changes the way that things are done. So I started using this language with them where imagining that their conditioning was software and that their body was this hardware. And when was the last time their software went through an upgrade as this operating system? And how much of the old operating system which is just a language that they really understand, from the days of survival was still running in their bodies. And the reality that most of these individuals are not happy and that finding a way to disrupt themselves was a good investment of their time. That's the, the languaging around this operating system and, and where it came from. You find a lot of them are, we all heard of burnout and people working 18-hour days and stuff like that. Do some of these people actually use performance-enhancing drugs or cocaine or stuff like that, which would be very short-sighted? I heard that June Cooper, the drummer, was using cocaine because he was competing with Buddy Rich, who was a really great drummer, but it eventually just ruined him. So it's very short-sighted to use artificial uh, stimuli like that. I'm sure there's lots of different ways in which people enhance, but I think What's more apparent to me is the ways that they cope more than the ways that they enhance. Some of them are running on fumes, and I can relate in some ways. And they're very concerned with stop or slowing down because and their sense of work, they don't want to. They don't want to. It feels so threatening to stop yeah. or slow down. They feel that everything will fall apart. Kind of like in your musician analogy, there's always someone running next to you right here or right here. and it's such a highly competitive environment, particularly sort of in the Silicon Valley world of technology. Things are evolving so quickly and you can be irrelevant so quickly in that framework that people just run as fast as they can until they hurt. So they hurt deep enough to try something new. And, you know, plant medicine has become a lot more popular in these circles because it provides a glimpse into a different reality. And it snaps them out of this 
very narrowly focused approach into like, oh, wow, there's something completely, and it can be so disorienting for a lot of them. Yeah. Because there's no healthy process of reintegration when it's not done in a way that's intentionally unconscious. That's an important so all point. Of a they have to go back to operating. Yeah. And I hear stories about people thinking that, oh, since I had such a profound experience, I'll do it every weekend. And then the next thing you know, it's really thrown their lives out of kilter. Because that's the way that they've approached things. I think there's incredible value in plant medicine and conscious journeys as a way to, well, there's probably a lot of therapeutic and healing properties, but just as a way to show something else as possibility. It's like going to watch a happy movie all the time that you're sad. Yeah, I think it was Alan Watts who said with regard to those drugs, he said, well, once you get the message, hang up the phone. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and I think we're so conditioned to pursue experiences. And we're so conditioned to think that somehow we think that there's going to be some experience that's going to really stick forever. Like, okay, I'm going to do this and I'm going to see this. And then when I do that, then I'll, I'll see everything like that forever. And I'll be at peace forever. And when I hear some of the spiritual teachers speak of their way of orienting around life and they speak of everything as one, it can be very easy to misunderstand that as a constant state of experience. Well, in a sense, it is a constant state of experience. I'll hit back at this just for a second. I mean, if you could, let's say, step inside of Adya's head or Ramana Maharshi, for that matter, you'd find that there is, was a constant state of experience that is really nice, a nice state to be in. But that doesn't mean that it's jaw-droppingly flashy or anything. We acclimate. It becomes natural. It's our natural style of functioning. Whereas psychedelics and, and things like that tend to be flashy and overpowering. And if, if somebody thinks that a state like that is going to become the norm, that really wouldn't be desirable. Who would want to be in a state like that all the time? And I would even question, I'm not obviously an Adias or Ramana's experience, but I would question that it's a constant state of experience. Experience, let's find a better word. The orientation through which life is lived. Yeah. Maybe a, a non-localized and at times localized. So even when it's localized, it's non-local. So the aperture is such where it can afford small apertures. And what becomes the loop of the spiritual seeker is the moment there's a small aperture, it thinks that it lost it. But the big aperture allows for the smaller apertures to exist. So Arya is likely not going around saying, there's no tree, it's all one. Yeah, of course. Right? So the small aperture of the individualized self that may even have agendas and preferences, temporary and seen as illusory. But I think when we believe that the enlightened master is always seeing everything as one and no separation, it keeps the seeking in place. It keeps the seeker in place. Yeah, I, I get you. And you use the word aperture. It's a good word because I sometimes think of it as a zoom lens. Like right now, my camera is focused on me and the background is a little blurry, but the camera could focus on the background and I'd be a little blurry like that. And, you know, cameras work that way. And I think that a, a person functioning in a, let's say, higher state of consciousness, for lack of a better phrase, it's kind of like a zoom lens where they're not always just zoned out in some kind of blissful state. They could be driving a car in a rainstorm and having to you know, totally focus on what they're doing. But there's a, a general frame of reference from which one functions 
that is different than it otherwise would be. Like in your own case, snap back to when you were 15 or 20 years old, compare that with the, the general state in which you function now. You probably did many of the same things you do now, but it's from a different general orientation. Yeah, it is. And it's not a flashy experience you're operating from. If anything, it's an unflashy experience because there's sort of deeper grounding in being in inner silence. Feel free to disagree with anything I'm saying. I'm just sort of... Yeah, you know. no, I think you're, you're absolutely right. It is very different. And it includes everything. And, and I think when the spiritual seeking mind associates awakening or enlightenment, whatever you want to call it, with one particular experience, I notice a lot of people keep looping around that. Yeah, like bliss or unboundedness, you know, some yeah. such thing. I think Arya calls it the sales pitch for enlightenment. Sales pitch? <laughs> Ramana was big on uh, talking about those things which come and go as not being the reality. Like when Papaji first came to him, he said he had just been having visions of Krishna and playing with Krishna. And, and Ramana said, is he here now? And Papaji thought, whoa, no, I guess he's not. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I love the the face of the spiritual teaching that is that is just cut. You know, it's like yeah. here, who is asking who? Is, <laughs> like okay, okay, so disarming and so helpful. My wife hates it. <laughs> yeah, I was going to ask <laughs> Which you about is your, your wife and kids. I mean, what do they think of you? <laughs> do they think your dad's kind of a nutcase, or are they on board with some of this themselves? They're kids, so they love it. But you know, we all have our journeys and i think there's no such thing as a perfect childhood so they will often in the conversations we have very open conversations oftentimes what they're working on is seeing me more messy so i have to be very attentive to showing all of my humanity to them they've grown up with it so they're very comfortable with it my ex sometimes calls me the teenage whisperer but my wife actually introduced me to a lot of these teachings i was very much in the psychological realm of healing myself and uh, when she first gave me emptiness dancing audio's book and our lives kind of flipped a little bit because then I, I went deep into spirituality and she had been raised with much more spirituality but then went deep into work so we were just at different age stages of our life cycle but we speak the same language yet there's a very distinct and i notice it with aria and uh, and mukti there's almost like a texture to the feminine teachings that is so heart-oriented. It's a big generalization, but I'm just proving it. That just feels so heart-centered and so engaging of the form. Like it brings all the little pieces into the fold. It's very different than the Manrushri quality of who's feeling, who's talking, who's sensing. And oftentimes when I notice my wife going through something in the past, she would be sharing something and I, I'd go with a Manjushri approach. And then I noticed that that's not really what she was looking for. And I would, I would ask her, you know, you, how can I support you? She's just, just listen. It's like, great. <laughs> I can do that. <laughs> yeah, that's a good point you make about the feminine qualities. Here on BatGap, we have a rule that we're going to interview as many women as men. And there are actually, for some reason, there are a lot more men in the database of potential people to interview. But we really stick to that rule. A lot of people feel that 
the world needs a lot more feminine energy and wisdom from feminine sources. We'd all be better off if that were more plentiful. Yeah, I think that's spot on, particularly because a lot of the masculine is about the stillness. It is about the formless. The the mature masculine comes back into the form, but, but because so much of the teaching has been done by masculine figures, it is very much about getting to that nothing is real state. And the feminine is really, I think that cycle could be a lot quicker in the feminine expression. Yeah. Another thing is that all the various scandals that happen in in spiritual circles not all but the vast majority are men that are screwing up and you know the women are pretty impeccable by comparison there's something that can be learned from that absolutely part of my journey has been as a man who grew up in mexico city where a lot of behaviors were pretty normalized has been reclaiming things that are uh, that I notice still operate in the masculine society macho stereotype macho how we relate to women which I guess is macho but for me I, I grew up in a world in a culture where integrity was very different than how I define it now and part of what happened for me as this deeper elements of truth started breaking me from the inside was that there was a lot of discomfort with anything that wasn't entirely honest or true Hmm. or in integrity. So all those things that I grew up being able to get away with, all of a sudden were impossible to ignore. Yeah, that's good. There's an organization called the Association for Spiritual Integrity, which I helped to found along with a few other people, and um, has well over 400 members now. But It's an attempt to raise the bar a little bit or popularize the notion that ethics and integrity are very important components of the spiritual path and shouldn't be ignored or rationalized away with some kind of it's all an illusion and I can do whatever I want because the world isn't real kind of nonsense, which some people actually do. (laughs) They try to use things, say things like that. It's so tempting for the remnants of that egoic structure because all of a sudden a lot more capacity comes online with these awakenings you're able to have a lot more influence and exert a lot more energy and manipulative capacity on people from that place so if there's if there's a part of you that's not in integrity and i think that's where you hear a lot of these scandals right because there's a lot of these spiritual teachers that are able to create that allure and that stigma and are able to coerce people into doing things in the name of something or just simply because they become more attractive beings in and of themselves because this, this light is attractive by nature. Yeah. Yeah. And I think the more that that happens, the more attractive one becomes, the more charisma one has and, and so on. It's really incumbent upon the teacher to be more careful, more circumspect, more impeccable in one's own behavior, because it's a great responsibility being a spiritual teacher. And it's, I think, a great crime to violate the trust that people place in you and take advantage of your position to take advantage of your students. I've always admired therapists and the the process, my wife's a marriage and family therapist in training, 
but the process of, of how much integrity is infused into the training of becoming a, a therapist, yeah. you know, how the, the dual relationships and the transference and how much that is really talked about. And it almost feels like as some of the people that are coming upon these realizations and getting ready to share them or teach, there'd be value in addressing that a little bit. Yeah, that's the kind of thing we're trying to do with that organization to some extent. But unlike your wife, who's training as a therapist, there's a formal part of her training which involves these issues. There's nothing like that with all the spiritual teachers that are stepping forth. I mean, it's just a kind of a free-for-all. There's no overarching organization that grants or revokes licenses the way there is with psychologists or doctors or lawyers or other such professions. Our little organization, the ASI, is certainly not going to take on that authority, but it is a bit more of a, a wild, wild west in comparison to these more established professions. Yeah, that's why I really was lucky enough to gravitate towards teachers that always encourage that inner discernment. Yeah. It's like, whatever I say here is, you know, just test it out for yourself and check out what works. And any teacher that essentially claims that they're the, the one or the doorway or the means towards that's probably a really good red flag. That's really good. I'm glad you're saying that. And the Buddha himself said something like that. He said, don't believe something just because I say it. Check it out for yourself, just the way you just said. Anyway, I hope that spiritual aspirants will grow more and more in that discernment and the wisdom to not adulate someone just because he sits up on a, on a pedestal and seems to be enlightened. But, you know, use your common sense and walk away if, if the guy seems to be going off the rails. Yeah. Easier said than done, right? Yeah, really. I've had my share of idolation for people that I really look up to. And, and like I said, I've just been graced by their giving it back and saying, oh, yeah. I'm not taking any of that. Good. That's good. So, Which not all of them do. Some of them, they just, it goes to their heads. Okay. A question came in from a gentleman named Pawan Kumar in Chandigarh, mm-hmm. India. Will every seeker eventually surrender once he is exhausted of seeking? If yes, Mm. should they just run towards exhaustion with full force? Oh, I wish I knew. That's a beautiful question. What I do know is that all of my spiritual practices and my spiritual dedication to put a word to it prepared me for those moments of deep exhaustion. I understood the value of them. And I was capable of holding enough inner stillness that when those moments happened, I wasn't quick to replace them with something else. I think we all have our walk to walk. I think if you've got energy to run, run. And no one to say that you shouldn't pursue what you want. But I do think there is a gift in that disillusionment that is often overlooked. I also think it's good to keep the principle of safety first in mind because I've run into instances, including one quite recently, where people, they're pedal to the metal and they're just saying enlightenment or bust and I'm going to meditate 10 hours a day or something. And then they end up having some kind of psychotic break or you know serious mm-hmm. problem. So you have to stay balanced. Absolutely. You know, get Thank proper exercise that. and sleep and food and all the normal things in life. You're not going to storm the gates of enlightenment by force. Yeah, I thought I could. <laughs> yeah, right. It was very silly. And thank you for sharing that because it is it is important to recognize that our body, this instrument, is just as divine as the most 
magical spiritual experience we could ever have. Yeah. And the body is the temple of the soul. You know, you have to take care of it and it's your vehicle, really. If you damage it in some way, then you're stuck with a damaged vehicle. And I would just suggest that there is this element of grace that seems to respond to this inner commitment. And that inner commitment doesn't mean necessarily the 10-hour meditation days. It's just that capacity inside to say, this is what's really important to me. Yeah, that's really good. There's a difference between gritting your teeth and just being enlightenment or bust, or just having this sincere, ardent, deep, heartfelt desire for this, not necessarily struggling and straining and doing all that. It comes from a deep place. I can think of examples of both. One of them actually seems rather egotistical, you know, where, damn it, I'm going to get this. And it's boom, boom. It does sort of fulfill the Neo-Advaitans thing about reinforcing the sense of a practicer. But I can think of other examples that it's much gentler and heartfelt and effective in terms of the outcome. I can really only directly speak of my experience. And even that is probably already filtered through my memory and my terrible recollection of things. But for whatever it's worth, it was very helpful because I I met fear and fear that was unconscious and often didn't necessarily have a story. Sometimes I have a story at the pit of my core Mm. often. And my impulse was to get to that edge and move away from that edge because it was way too scary. And I think this spiritual commitment to what truly is important supports us in staying at that edge where everything in us is a big no, because it does feel like death to some part of us. And to just go back to that inner commitment in those moments. Yeah. In a way that holds in context the larger picture of your your body and making sure you're taking care of yourself. But being able to let that precipice approach inside of myself and stay with it was, was incredibly valuable at one point. That's good. I like the way... You speak. I can see there's this self-reflective care in how you choose your words, although you're speaking spontaneously, but there's a thoughtfulness. It's good. A question came in from Peter Buckley in Vancouver. Do you feel that the masculine approach to spirituality dismisses the need to heal the heart, heal trauma on the spiritual path? I wouldn't necessarily call it the masculine approach dismisses that. I would just suggest that oftentimes the feminine has it more front and center. In general, the masculine directive is more single-pointed. And in my experience, it made very little room for anything else other than that single-pointed direction. I remember at one point, I don't know if, if it was an Arya talk or something, but the invitation was... What do I know for sure to such a degree that I would bet my loved one's life on it? The teacher asked? And that, yeah. Didn't ask it to me. It was part of a talk. General question. Yeah. yeah. And it really struck me because all the answers that I could come up with, and I was in this sort of spiritual, so I went to, I am. It's all consciousness. And, but even these answers, when I was thinking of my children's life, just weren't holding mustard. And I got really, really quiet. I love those questions that get me really, really quiet. To me, that's both what I would call masculine 
leveraging the feminine, right? Because it's the cutting through illusion, but it's bringing in the heart and the love. Like, oh, I love this being so much that I'm holding that up against this illusion. And I'm using that deep love as a way to see through all the things that are not real. So I thought that was a very skillful way of merging these two. Did you come up with an actual answer that you could have expressed? No, I stayed quiet for a long time. It's an interesting question. Because I know that every answer is filtered one way or another through my sensing organ mechanisms. And if I was unaware of somebody giving me any kind of substance, I know how my mind gets altered. I know that I can't necessarily believe. I know that it's operating in time. And that time, by definition, involves either imagination or memory. So what fits into that? Part of why I love that question is that it leads into this examining of time as the canvas of our reality. Because any answer would, be, would have to be placed on this canvas. But if the canvas is, is seen as just this fabrication of past and future, because every story needs a little dimensionality, it's almost like painting in the air when the canvas is not there. Nice. Let's take another chapter of your book. We may have covered a lot of this stuff, so we can always move on to the next one. Irrational discontent. Yeah, that's the discontent that doesn't make sense. The one that that is, I should be happy. Like you've got everything going have, for you. And I have all of this. Yeah. Family, friends, I've got financial security. It happens, I think, many times through our life. It's sort of exemplified by this midlife crisis phenomenon. But it's this moment when it's similar to what we were speaking of the strategies, when our strategies seem to have failed. Yeah. When the promise of whatever it was that we were embarking on is seen through as impermanent. And you were speaking of, of the Buddha. I, I, I imagine Siddhartha's experience of discontent was one where, like, well, I'm living in this palace or Sir Francis of Assisi, there's, and there's something missing. Yeah. Well, you know, the story was, it was predicted by some astrologer that he was either going to become a great king or a great spiritual leader. And his father wanted to be a king. So he tried to sequester him in the palace and not allow him to see anything negative in the world outside. But Buddha got out one day and, and he was going around and he saw a sick person and an old person and a dead person. And he was like, what's wrong with these people? And he was told, well, this is what happens to everybody. It's going to happen to you someday. And so then he thought, okay, that's it. <laughs> I have to leave and find out the truth. Yeah, which to the rational mind makes absolutely no sense. Yeah. So let's take another one. Unnecessary roughness. <laughs> I think that's all the stuff that we put ourselves through. I, As I mentioned, having grown up in this Catholic landscape, in a Catholic school, I associated learning with judgment. It's almost like the premise of, of lashing yourself. It's like, oh, if I do something wrong, I must hold on to this strong judgment. Otherwise, I won't learn. And if someone else does something wrong, I must really hold on to that grudge or otherwise it will happen again. And it's all the ways in which we create this unnecessary hurt because we think it's going to help us out. And we think we must keep our grievances top of mind. And we truly believe that if we were to forgive or bring compassion to those places, that then we would not learn, the other individual would not learn, we would go through something like that again. That's not my experience at all. 
I think it's unnecessary roughness. Yeah, I've heard um, philosophies of prison reform, and they do this in some Scandinavian countries in which they try to give the prisoners as good a life as possible, you know, comfortable setting and nice food and, you know, nice fresh air in the country and just everything as good as possible. They even, you know, let them work in the kitchen with sharp knives and all kinds of things, but it turns out to be much more healing and they have much better success rates than a real punishing kind of um, criminal justice system. I love that. It's hard for the, again, for the rational mind or for the mind that's justified in its righteousness to not think of punishing someone. We associate in ourselves and each other the behavior with the individual. And we think that we think of themselves as criminals or wrongdoers, whatever it may be, promiscuous or liar or as opposed to individuals. I think there's a tribe somewhere that I was I was reading that thinks of people as having caught a virus, the virus of lying or the virus of stealing. And then the individual is not necessarily a liar or a thief. The individual is someone that caught this thing that needs to be cured. And that is an approach that makes a lot more sense. Certainly our current system isn't working in the way that it's punishing. And I see it with children in this identity of a parent. I think, oh, if I don't punish them, then they'll never learn. Not my experience at all. I don't think I've ever punished my children. So what do you do if one of your kids misbehaves in some way? What if you catch them stealing something or lying to you or being mean to their little sister or whatever? Yeah, There's a part of your book about that, actually, (laughs) being mean to the little sister. Yeah, yeah. First, I check my energy because most of the time I'm bringing my own baggage to the mix. So if I'm bringing my own baggage, it's really difficult to create any value out of the exchange because I'm just projecting my stuff and I'm holding my own issues into it. But if I'm not triggered in that way, if it truly is just this is something that wasn't supposed to happen according to sort of our understanding, I found them to be incredibly capable of having full-on conversations from very early ages, where I sit down and I say, you know what, this is how I felt when you did this, this is why it doesn't work, this is why it works. Let's come up with a strategy together so that that doesn't happen again. And it becomes such a an incredible, and sometimes they'll do it again. And if they do it again, then I'll come up with them with a strategy with what the consequence needs to be. And it's incredible. They're a lot more difficult on themselves than I would be. Their consequence may be, oh, the next time I do this, I should, and we write it down on a piece of paper. It's like, okay, if I ever do this again, then this is what I'm going to, I would have suggested one day, not a whole week, but okay. (laughs) And it's incredible to be able to treat them in a way where I really honor their humanity. And I think along the way, I've healed so much of my upbringing, which was much more authoritarian. And I noted that every time I'm triggered, it's because there's the younger part of myself that wish she had received something that needs to be brought forward. Oftentimes, some version of feeling disempowered. As you were saying that, I was thinking about how this works well for you, but I wonder if it would work as well as a parenting method for somebody who hasn't done as much work on themselves as you have, you know, who hasn't undergone as much transformation. Because another person who is full of all kinds of tension and wounding and whatnot could say the very same words that you were saying to your kids in these circumstances, and it might really not have the same effect. Yeah, I think that that's likely. And yet, I think our children are not looking, our children, our relationships are not looking for us to be perfect. 
and not be messing up. But if we can model how to be when we mess up, if we can show up in ways that are less than optimal, but then say, hey, you know what? I kind of really didn't show up right there. I think that's more powerful than not messing up. If there's the slightest capacity, even significantly after the fact, to take responsibility for how we showed up in any relationship, truly letting go of the other side, like taking 100% for how we showed up, not conditioning and a yes, but you did this, so I did this, but truly just say, you know what? That way that I did this, I could see how I could have done it differently, and I'm sorry. That's so powerful. And children understand that language very well. Yeah, it's great. It's it's a real humility kind of thing where it's not like, I'm your father, and what, whatever I say, that's what is going to happen. I mean, there are people who function that way. But it's like, hey, we're all bozos on this bus, and I'm doing my best. Yeah, and I was so invested in appearing as a really good dad. Yeah. That oftentimes, I purposely didn't mess up, or if I was having a, a difficult experience, I would hide it from them. Right. And I noticed how I was handicapping. Yeah, because they, they could probably see right through it. <laughs> totally. So we've talked a bit about surrender. You have uh, a couple chapters here. What is possible? Dynamic surrender. Have we covered those points or is there anything more we want to say about those things? No, I think we've, we've I mean, I'm sure there's things that we can talk about. Okay. But, but then there are a bunch of different freedom chapters, mental, emotional, physical, spiritual. Have we covered those? I think we've covered aspects of them. Certainly we've covered a little bit of the physical when speaking of, and there's, I just tell stories about people that I've mentored and how I've seen them evolve. And I share some of these tools that are really helpful in liberating different aspects of ourselves at these various levels, right? At, at the mental, there's a bunch of things. We've talked a little bit about Katie's inner work and inquiry, right? But there's, there's a lot of other things that we can do to, to deal with sort of our mental chatter. On the emotional level, you know, there's a lot that resides in the psychological realm of doing even healing of memories, of being able to observe misunderstandings that we subscribe to and the meanings that we made. So a lot of that work. On the spiritual, we've spoken quite a bit of it, but I frame it as the spiritual part that is still looking for a outside figure for comfort. The spiritual freedom is really ultimately a freedom from these ideals, from this enlightened self or more conscious self. I think there can be a distinction between a dependency on an outside figure to try to fill some vacuum within oneself and then just the enjoyment of associating with highly spiritual people. There might be some people who go to a spiritual teacher and there's like, oh my God, I have to get as close to this person as possible. And, and I feel so miserable when I have to leave. But then there's another orientation, which is it's nice to enjoy the company of such people when the opportunity arises, but my world doesn't crash and burn when I'm not around them. And I don't have to strong arm my way to their immediate proximity, and, you know, things like that. I've been through both of those myself. I mean, I've, I've been both of those types of person in my life. Me too. Me too. And then at first it was, I think we use so many different things to create ideals. There's one version of it, which is Ramana and the Arunachala. And that was sort of an externalized reference when you say, well, how contradictory is that? That you say that there is no self, no separation. And yet here you are 
having a love affair with this mountain. And I think it's paradoxical in, in so many ways. And I think you're right. It gets tricky. It's like the idea of God. I think relationship with this figure that we could call God or this symbol that we could call God is, is incredibly beautiful. I think it's so valuable at different stages. And at some point in my own journey, I had to be willing to give up the concept of God to claim my own autonomy. That doesn't mean that I wouldn't recreate an idea of God and pray to that God. But it would be a very different relationship than the one that I grew up with. Yeah, even if you had a concept, it would be very different than the concept that you learned when you were a kid. Some big scary guy in the sky with a thunderbolt or something. I remember when I first was having these bigger revelations, when I was more in that emptiness, formless space, my father, who is also Catholic, would always sort of do the cross. Right. I don't know why you call it in English. But uh, he would he would say goodbye. Genuflect, isn't it? I think that's the word. Anyway, go ahead. Never heard that word. But he would do the persinarme in Spanish. And I wouldn't do it back. Being because bad. I'd be like, no, he wouldn't. He'd oh. understand. But it'd be like, sure, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, amen, whatever. But I wouldn't do it. And then at one point, I just started doing it again. And I found so much love and joy in it. Nice. And it was this beautiful exchange. And I think that's the possibility of religion. Some of us have to have those teenage years where kind of like in that transcending our humanity, we... We move away, we judge it, we think it's the worst thing ever. And if appropriate, we understand it at a later point and grow to enjoy it in a different way. Yeah. And, you know, speaking of devotion and God and all that, most of the well-known Indian spiritual teachers anyway had no problem enjoying both non-duality and devotion. And every single one of them, Ramana, you've already mentioned, uh, Shankara, Sri Ramakrishna, in fact, he said, I'd rather taste honey than be honey. So <laughs> Papaji and the Sargadatta, they all had these devotional things going on in addition to their intellectual teachings, which were more likely to end up in books. Yeah, and I often wonder how much of that was not for them, but for people around them. Completing the circle of love coming back for itself. And how much of that outward display of that reverence and devotion was a way to model the mature expression of that non-dual experience of being? Could be both. In other words, yeah. they enjoyed it. Shankara or one of his disciples said something like, uh, the intellect imagines duality for the sake of devotion. Um, and Shankara wrote all this beautiful devotional poetry and stuff. And yet he was the founder of Advaita Vedanta. So... Like I said earlier, we have different faculties, and one of them happens to be the heart, and the heart enjoys love and bliss and stuff like that, which devotional qualities or activities can stir up. What do you find yourself currently in devotion to? That's a good question. Well, I, you know, I've had a couple of different spiritual teachers in my life, um, Amma, whose picture is behind us there, and Maharishi Mahesh Yogi earlier on, and went through a very devotional phase with both of them. These days, if anything, I would have to say it's kind of a sense of quiet awe at the intelligence that I see functioning in everything. As I walk down the street, looking at the sidewalk or the grass or the telephone pole, 
I'm constantly reminded that all of this is infused with the divine and it's, it's functioning on every level from the subatomic to the galaxies. I love looking at pictures of galaxies and just contemplating the vastness of creation and the vastness of the intelligence, which dwarfs the size of creation by virtue of its omnipresence. So I don't know, that's kind of mental the way I'm describing it, but there's a feeling associated with that. It's fun to think about. It's fun to feel. How about you? Humanity. Humanity. That's a good one. Yeah, I should have said that too. Yeah, go ahead. You want to say more about that? No, I just see images. Um, I keep seeing images of my children and the love that I have for them. And and I think what you're describing, the awe, even when there's like a pattern. (laughs) I took my kids inner tubing the other day. So I rented a boat and it was Labor Day weekend. And I'm in this bay that is so crowded with jet skiers and everyone. And, and I'm pulling them behind the boat on, on the, one of these little inflatables. And I found myself so stressed because I'm pulling them and there's jet skis whizzing by and I'm barely yeah. able to keep up. And they're, are they okay? And then I just caught myself. Actually, I didn't catch myself. My daughter said that if we're, you're going to be stressed, we don't need to enter too. Brilliant. <laughs> 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 but it's this awe at how this humanity operates and how it finds its ways and when there's like a, an attachment to a particular outcome and in my spiritual dimension or persona i'd be like well there shouldn't be attachments like what i'm very attached to my kid right now being safe and, and the fact that that is part of it i find so much awe in that yeah that's beautiful i'm really glad you're saying that i interviewed a woman two or three weeks ago named jessica Nathanson, or she calls herself Jessica Eve. And she's kind of on this campaign to point out the shortcomings of Neo Advaita, but she said she deals with people all the time. Like there was one guy who said he had become so emotionally numb and detached as a result of his indulgence in that approach that he didn't have any feeling for his kids anymore because they're illusory. And he was even becoming suicidal over it. But what you're saying is, I think one can feel the most intense, ardent love for one's kids. And that's not a symptom of spiritual ignorance. I've seen Ama, for instance, just with tears rolling down her cheeks when someone presents their sufferings to her or someone says their child died or their husband beat them or some such thing. And she just feels it intensely. And yet I've never met someone who at the same time is so free within herself. Love a distinction that I once heard Arya give around freedom because he said, one thing is to be free from, and the other is to be free to. It sounds what you're describing in Ama is, is she's free to experience deeply. Yeah. It's like an ocean can rise up in much bigger waves than a shallow pond can. It's free to do that because it has the capacity. Yeah, the ocean recognizes the attachment of the wave of like, oh, survive kid must be safe. I must not crash. And the spiritual way says, no, no, well, then you're, you're confused. And then you're, you're believing in separation. And it's so understandable as part of the journey. And I relate to this individual that you're sharing that sort of just is so in this transcendent, nothing matters mode. It can be so tempting to linger there. And I want to encourage anyone listening that is lingering there or is to not make that wrong, but to recognize there's maybe a little opening in the heart and see what the heart in the body 
feels like at any given moment. Because there's a dropping from this transcendent experience of being, which tends to be over here. It's just like a settling into the body, into the heart. That's a little more texture. Yeah. As you know, Adya likes to talk about awakenings in head, heart, and gut. And I presume he means sequentially. But I think a lot of people have achieved some degree of awakening on the head level. But so far, the heart, for some people, has been neglected or just hasn't blossomed yet. But I think when it does, it can be far more sumptuous than a mere head awakening. And it's so confusing for the one that was so invested in escaping. It's like, what do you, what do you mean we're going back into storyland? <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Put so much effort moving away from that. And it's not real. What, what do you mean we're going to start indulging stories? And it, it is kind of like the the dreamer analogy, right? Recognizing the dream as just a dream. And then it's like, I'm going to go back into that character. And Yeah, this whole not real business. Mind. I think it's not even really a valid thing to dwell on for a householder. If a person wants to sit in a cave in the Himalayas and just go really heavy into the world is an illusion, then fine, if that's what they're cut out for. But I really don't think it's compatible with householder life. And that's part of the problem with Neo-Advaita is that this kind of teaching is being propagated willy-nilly to audiences, for most of whom it is not really appropriate or ideal. Yeah, and it's very easy for the egoic structure to hijack that. Okay, well, that's not necessarily the most inspiring note to end on. <laughs> so maybe we can throw out something else. You know, for instance, you're running businesses, you're raising your family. What are you doing? Anything else specifically in the spiritual realm? You still go to retreats once in a while, but then also you're not setting yourself up as a spiritual teacher, as far as I know, but you do say that you want to alleviate suffering in the world as much as possible. So what are you doing? What's your aspiration? What are your activities? You know, it's so moment to moment. I'm not a spiritual teacher. And wherever I'm finding myself, I'm just in almost like being this reclaimer of all those parts of our humanity. And this book is a version of that. All the proceeds go to a foundation called Contentment, contentment.org, and that develops curriculum for school children. I co-founded that. And uh, I'm on a lot of education boards and a lot of different nonprofits that try to address homelessness and poverty. But I notice it's great, but where I find that phrase of alleviating suffering most relevant is um, isn't just my immediate circle. Anytime I'm I'm creating separation in my own experience of of the world or those around me, and then by definition, the byproduct of that is just a lot of love and compassion and responsibility yeah i mean charity begins at home i guess they say and think globally act locally want to make sure that one's own life is in integrity carlos castaneda's teacher had a saying he said a warrior has time only for his impeccability and by a warrior he meant a spiritual dude but i think you've got your your priorities straight yeah i got my compass straight I think the compass, and a lot of people in the circles that I move on, people speak a lot about purpose. And and I encourage them, and it can be so tricky, but I encourage them to get clear with their how more than their what. 
Because if you're clear with your how, then wherever you find yourself, you're living that purposefulness. That's good. You do consult with people. I've heard you say in your book, you're consulting with various business people. And I don't know if that's a formal thing you do, or maybe it's just with the people whose companies you invest in. But it sounds to me like you've had fairly good success helping type A business executive push the reset button and chill out a little bit. That's not a business. That's just something I do. Something you do, yeah. Yeah. And I, I write a blog every now and then. Which is on your website? Yeah. Okay, good. Well, I'll be linking to that from BatGap. Alrighty. Well, this has been fun. Is there anything else you want to say in conclusion before we wrap it up? Well, gratitude. Well, thank you. Yeah. Gratitude thank you for to you. what you do and what you've been doing for so long. Well, it's the only game in town, at least for me. It's fun. It's enjoyable. Thank you. And I'm honored to be here with you. Well, thank you so much. And thanks to those who've been listening or watching. And I'll be linking to Emilio's website and to his book if you'd like to read it. Can they contact you through your website if they want to? I don't know. I'll find out. If you want people to. I mean, (laughs) maybe you've got enough going on you don't want everybody emailing you, but... I'll create something on my website so there's a a way to capture an email and respond. Okay, great. If I ever get out to Los Angeles, I'll get in touch. Please do. Next week, everybody, I'll be interviewing Brian Swim, who's a cosmologist. And I, I love that field. I love the kind of stuff he talks about. And I've been wanting to interview him for years. And finally, I think Irene emailed him a few months ago and said, all right, one last time, <laughs> would you like to do an interview? And he said, yeah, yeah, okay, I'll do it. <laughs> so I'm reading his book at the moment, which is called Cosmogenesis. And as the name implies, it's about the genesis or the origin of the cosmos. and As far as I know, his theme is that the universe is suffused with intelligence and that there's an evolutionary trajectory to it. A famous quote from Brian is that you leave hydrogen alone for 13.7 billion years and you end up with giraffes, rose bushes, and opera. So I'm looking forward to that conversation. All right. Well, thanks, Emilio. And thanks to everyone who has been listening or watching. See you for the next one.